Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga from College Coach. Um, today's going to be a really interesting show. Actually, for those of you who are watching this on YouTube, um, you can see that we have some new guests, um, guests from the Wiley Network, an organization that serves students who are navigating college without the safety net of supportive parents or other mainstays. To follow up on that, we'll be talking with Lisa Albro about her experience as the first person in her family to go to college. Um, Lisa, as well as before she worked for College Coach, also then helped others in her family. And after working in college admission, became a high school counselor. So she has a lot of good insight. And finally, for our last segment, we'll be talking with Tara Piantanitas Kelly about some rare possible good news in college admissions, why your school might have given you money back. Um, but first, please welcome Dr. Judy Alperin-King and Ms. Majin Lorth, Majin Lorth of the Wiley Foundation. Welcome, both of you. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. So what I'd really like, um, I, I think we need to start from the beginning, which is just really what the Wiley Foundation is, its mission, et cetera. So yeah, just please dive right in. Okay, I will start with that. So my name is Judy. My pronouns are she, her. And I started the Wiley Network seven and a half years ago to provide a safety net for college students who were really arriving at college by themselves without necessarily the things they needed, without the opportunity to have somebody to call to share exciting news or to help them um, regroup when they stumbled. Um, some of those students, uh, they're they're arriving at, at college without a parent, like many people in this audience, who have said to them from a very young age, college is your ticket out, or college is what we expect, or college is how you learn a specific trade. They really developed that motivation on their own. And when you arrive at college, things are are very different. I'll get back to that in a moment. The Wiley Network is really a tribute to some young people who have navigated really stormy waters in a very wily way, very strategic and cunning. And they arrive at college and they're in great need of a network, a network that most of their peers already have in place from the privilege that they have grown up with. Um, family privilege is something that most people don't talk about. Mm -hmm. um, Wiley scholars don't have family privilege during this time of great development in most people's lives. Um, they don't have that privilege because they were possibly in foster care. They may be homeless. Um, they may be estranged from their family due to their gender identity or sexual orientation. For many scholars, they have parents who would have loved to have been able to be there for them, but are managing addiction, major mental health issues, or incarceration. So for a variety of reasons, they've landed at college on their own. And that's where Wiley steps in to mm -hmm. be there to walk by their side through college. Mm -hmm. And when we we talked previous to this particular to this show, and you mentioned that 
one of the ways that this assistance is given is through um, coaches. And you specifically said coach and not mentor. And I thought that was interesting. So I was hoping you could explain what what the coaches are and kind of like how it functions, how that assistance is given. Sure, I'll be happy to talk about that. I am a, a clinical scholar coach. I work with um, some students in the greater Boston, um, in schools in the greater Boston area. The difference with between a coach and a mentor is that our, us coaches, we are trained clinicians. Although coaching is not therapy, as clinicians, we are uh, able to support students with complaints complex trauma history. Mm -hmm. And we focus on the present and future, not so much of the past, which therapy tends to do. And our framework is student-centered. And we believe that the students are expert of their own life, right? We don't go in um, saying, this is how I did it. This is how you should do it, right? And it's really focused on the student current experience and partnering with them to set and achieve their goals. And the coach is set up to work with the student throughout their college journey, celebrating their successes and helping them navigate any challenges that might come up. Um, and it's less so about here's the path that I took and here's where you may want to do it rather than together partnering with the scholar and figuring out what they would like to work on and how they're wanting to get support to do those things. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the specifics about how how you do that, right? Like let's let's kind of dive in. I mean, it, I I already really like this point. As someone who does college, we call ourselves college coaches, but we're not coaches like you are. Mm -hmm. um, and it is interesting. College, I think, brings up a lot of. I, I don't know if it's the right word to call it trauma, but it brings up a lot of anxiety for students who have supportive parents. And um, a lot of concerns about identity starts to come into play. And again, these are students who've been told from the beginning that they're going to be going to college. Um, so I can like, boy, would it would be helpful if I had some training to kind of deal with the emotional side of things before going with my instinct. And your students must be much more, um, you know, have more of those concerns. So just kind of, yeah, like how are, what are some of the specifics of how you address that and how you let them take the lead? Sure. So we meet with each scholar on their college campus once a week, and we use a framework to help them um, resource map and also identify what, what the gaps are. Um, so one of the things that we use is the eight life domains where the student is at the center, but they're there different things that they're dealing with. And that could be uh, career aspirations, academic, um, social and support um, supportive network, uh, uh, campus skills, things like that. And it's really an assessment tool. When they come into the coaching session, we ask them, what area is feeling challenging right now? Or what area is feeling good for you right now? And it's, it's not the whole framework, but it's in conjunction with other tools that we use to structure our coaching sessions to make sure that they're getting what they need out of it. And the eight life domains could be something that the general public and even the listeners could use as a reflection tool to identify gaps and resource mapping for themselves. Mm -hmm. So why do you think the eight life, I mean, I can see why the eight life domains might be useful, but what do you think makes them particularly helpful when a student is trying to kind of communicate with their coach and also just figure out their own challenges? 
You know, sometimes a student could be coming in and because of all they're dealing with, they don't necessarily have on top of mind exactly how to label what's happening or what area in their life they need support with right now, because everything is just feeling so big. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it really helps ground the conversation when you can pull out the eight life domains and map out okay, this is what I'm, I'm feeling right now. This is where it's falling into. And this is what I want to focus the meeting in, in talking about what um, the challenges that I'm facing right now. Or it also is, you know, I'm doing well in school. So academic is feeling good right now. It's not a challenge. So I don't want to focus on that. So it's really grounding and structuring the conversation because you imagine if you're on a college campus, usually they're coming in from like, two or three classes and haven't eaten all day, right? Mm -hmm. Thinking about the next class they're going into and I'm asking them, how are you doing? If it's that general of a question, Mm -hmm. it may be hard to pinpoint, you know, what's feeling good and what's not feeling good. So having the eight live domains, when we bring it out, can help pull it in into, okay, oh, so what I'm feeling right now is that I don't have the support that I need in taking care of my mental health. And so that's what we're going to focus on. So it really helps pull it all in together. Mm-hmm. So and, how and, can, oh. oh, go ahead, please. I was just going to say, and then the next step is that we work with them to connect to the resources and access the resources that are on campus so that we're not duplicating services. We really want them to utilize the rich resources that are already existing on campus, which can mm-hmm. often feel really unavailable to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've read stories about, you know, a student who failed his classes because he didn't he couldn't afford his books and he didn't realize he could buy he could check them out at the library. I mean, that was just heartbreaking. It was such a solvable thing. Uh, Right. And that's and that all of our all of the Wiley scholars do um, receive Pell grants. So they're living below the poverty line. Mm -hmm. Typically, they have zero expected family contribution. But this family privilege piece is the additional piece that that sort of is who the Wiley scholars are. That's their unique um, situation that other scholars who can't afford their books um, are in. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. They have that other, you are connecting them to those other resources. Right. Yeah, yeah, which is very important. Um, how do about, um, how about like, how, um, how should other students, like students who have supports or faculty or administrators or whoever it might be, who might be working at some of these colleges where the typical student has the supports, how can they help? Like, what are some things to be aware of, um, when you're meeting a student for the first time and you don't know, maybe they could be a student who, um, doesn't have supports. Like what are some advice that you would give the rest of us for supporting students appropriately? In, in my opinion, I think just like in many areas of our lives, we need to check ourselves around the assumptions that we make. We tend to organize the world based off of ourselves and our own situation. And so when you meet your roommate for the first time or you sit next to somebody in class, check yourself first. Be curious. If you approach people with curiosity rather than assumptions, then you have a much better shot at making a real connection. 
So for example, when you meet your roommate for the first time, you really don't know what their experiences have been. Did their house recently burn down? Could they be a Wiley scholar? Might they have some other loss in their lives? And so instead of starting with, do you want to bring the fridge or the microwave? Maybe start with what kind of music do you like? Um, what town did you go to high school in? And and to start that way and build that general connection around commonalities that you have, rather than saying, where'd you go last summer? Or who's in your family? Or what do your parents do for work? Those are the kinds of questions that for whoever you ask could make them feel uncomfortable initially. And so if you can, if you can have the foundation of your relationship based on those questions of curiosity, then you're more likely, the the student's more likely to feel comfortable with you. Mm -hmm. I'd like to circle back to the eight life domains as well, because that does seem like that would be really helpful framing for everyone. How can people sort of find it if they want to use it for themselves or if a parent wants to use it for their student? It's on our website. <laughs> And you could use it as a reflection tool even before um, your child head out to college to say, you know, here's where you're feeling good about, <laughs> which domains are you feeling good about, which one do you think would be challenging as you head out the door and could use support around. Um, and I, I think as well as before the semester start, here's where, again, you would like to gain support and from family and other um, find resources on campus to, to support you as you um, start your college career. Mm -hmm. Do you have any, um, do you have any kind of stories or examples of, um, I, I realize there's a confidentiality issue, but I was just wondering if there are any students that you wanted to describe their path through the Wiley Network and how you'd been able to help them? Oh, yeah, we have many stories. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have a few minutes, so I'd I love to hear one. Go ahead, Judy. I can start just with a short one, um, which which I, I talk about a lot, is a student who arrived on campus by themselves. They didn't have the the physical things that they needed to start their their college journey. And they looked across the room and they had had a sibling who had gone to college two years before and left college after a semester. Mm -hmm. And their roommate was moving in and their roommate's family was unpacking things. The One of the parents was making the bed. They said, oh, we're going to run to Target. You know, do you need anything? And and there she was standing there without the things she needed, all alone, no one to call. And it was the first moment that she realized or felt that she didn't belong. Mm -hmm. And she actually told somebody the next day that this wasn't going to work out for her either. And they told her about the Wiley Network. Mm -hmm. And she graduated two years ago. She's got a great job. She's doing well. But she told me that even with the Wiley network, she still considered dropping out of school, you know, at least weekly. And if we think about it, those that were going from high school straight to a job were prepared to find housing, to find a job, a way to take care of themselves. If you leave college at any point during your career, oh, if a Wiley scholar leaves college, they are immediately homeless, jobless, and will have school loans on top of that. Mm -hmm. So for a, 
a small amount of work. I don't mean to say we don't work hard. We do very hard, but, but they're very, they're trailblazers, right? They Mm -hmm. are so talented. So we're really just their sidekicks to some extent. And so for a small amount of effort, you can be there for someone, you can be their champion and then, and, and walk with them by their side so that they do achieve their goals. But it's scary if they ever have to leave. Mm -hmm. I mean, I even think about just, you know, the holiday breaks. If they don't have a home to go back to, then they're, you know, and a lot of schools shut down their dorms. I mean, already that is a challenging um, situation and explaining when people say, oh, you're going to go home. And then what? even if you get to stay in the dorm, you say no. Mm. And that always seems that must, you know, it makes you feel apart from others again. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you want to stay in the dorm, you have to go tell a stranger why you need to stay in the dorm. Right. Right. And that, you know. I would have, I would avoid that at all costs. Right. Do you have a story, Mayjean? I preempted you. Oh, no. <laughs> I think your story highlighted um, what it means to be a Wiley scholar and for us to be walking alongside our scholars. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So, so let's move on then for how students can find the Wiley network, you know, like let's, let's talk about how hopefully they can find them while they're still in high school. Like how early do you start working with students? Like, let's, let's kind of get into that. So we don't start working with students in high school. On occasion, we do hear about them. It's um, after, so we're just in the greater Boston area, but there are programs like ours all around the country. And um, they're mainly in California and Michigan, but we hear about a student after decision day. So when Mm -hmm. they know where they're going to school, we typically hear about students through their financial aid office or student affairs or at some schools admissions. Mm-hmm. We also hear, um, we learn about scholars through their, their peers. Sometimes they know about them. And now we are here more and more people are finding us through search engines on the computer. And there's a form that they can fill out on our website to, um, to learn more about Wiley. It's not really an application we're looking for a new word, but it's more expressing interest. And then we see if they fit the criteria to be a Wiley scholar and if it feels like a match. Mm-hmm. Good. All right. And then one last thing, where can people donate? How can people help, I guess, who who uh, are in the privileged position of having supports? You want me to do that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, if everybody in the audience I know is thinking about college, so really think about as you plan for college, what could you do to support somebody who really is in need, who really doesn't have that dorm set up, who can use a champion outside of the college campus? Um, it is, um, you can go to www.thewileynetwork.org. I think the critical piece of this is that you use the the and Wiley is W-I-L-Y as in strategic. Um, And we would love for any donations um, and let us know if you heard about us through this podcast, because we would love to let, um, let our hosts know if we are able to raise any money through this, Mm -hmm. through our conversation today. 
Yeah, and please let us know too. You can comment on um, social media pages for College Coach. I'd be very interested in hearing what people think about stories like this. And if even if they're not in a position to donate money, if it makes them think about how they interact with others, I think that's a positive too. Obviously, donations are great. Not trying to minimize that. <laughs> so, all right. Well, listen, thank you so much, um, Judy and Jean, I really, really appreciate you coming on today and taking the time in spite of what I'm sure is an extremely busy schedule helping all your students. Thank, Thank you, you so much us. for having us. Okay. All right. So um, we'll be back shortly um, and I'll be talking with Lisa Albro about attending college as a first generation student. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one -on -one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone, and welcome, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you. All right. So, Lisa, we want to talk about um, what it's like to be a first generation student. I think this is a nice compliment to our first session today, which is about more. It's kind of more so about students who come to college without a lot of supports at home. Um, obviously, your family, I know from knowing you for a long time, are very supportive, wonderful folks, but just weren't really able to tell you about college because they hadn't gone. So I'd kind of like to just dive into some of the notable people pieces of what your experience was like as a first generation student at college. Sure, absolutely. So, I mean, it's a lot of it is just not knowing what to expect. If you don't have someone who's gone before you to tell you the stories and give you the warnings and all of that, you, you kind of have to make it up as you go. And, you know, in my own experience, but also in a lot of first gen students that I've worked with, what I've noticed is just an apprehension, um, just it, kind of like the fear of the unknown in a way, like you, you want to go on this journey, you're on this path and, and, and you, you want to do your best, but there are a lot of things you're not quite sure about. And sometimes you're a little bit nervous about asking and you don't know who the people would be to ask for a little guidance. So you kind of have to carve your own path sometimes or just slowly as you encounter different people, you find out, okay, who should I ask about this? And who should I ask about that to, to sort mm -hmm. of pave the way? Is there a level of uh, kind of embarrassment too? I mean, not that students should be embarrassed, but I mean, you really shouldn't be. I mean, half of what I do, I think, when I'm talking to students is tell them to ask questions. Sure. Um, but I, I um, 
you know, I, I always think about students feel like everybody else knows what they're doing and I don't. So I just yes. have to figure it out without asking. Is that a piece of it? That's a piece of it. I don't know if I'd say the embarrassment, at least personally, I don't know if I felt the embarrassment. It was more like a, uh, an inferiority thing. Mm-hmm. Like all these other people have the guidance or they, they, their next generation, they've, they know what they're doing and I just don't. So I'm going to wing it and make them think I know what I'm doing. <laughs> so I think it was more of that. It was less of the feeling comfortable asking questions and more of the, I'll, I'll fake it until I make it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm kind of getting more of that sense from some of the students I've worked with too, that they're, it's not an embarrassment. I don't think I've ever heard it that, put it that way, but mm-hmm. definitely a, a, an inferiority mm-hmm. complex or like, right. a, you know, we, we talk about imposter syndrome in a lot of different things. And I think there's that at work sometimes too. Like, I, I feel like I'm, I'm an imposter here. I, you know, do I really belong here? Like, you know, you do. Mm-hmm. But then you're kind of worried that, well, everybody else knows more than I do here, or they all know, they all know exactly what they're doing. But the truth is not everybody does know what they're doing. Even Mm -hmm. if all their whole family went to college, even if they're the the sixth child in the family to go to college, everyone's still making their own way. And I think that's what I mainly want to convey to families now that, you know, everybody's got to put on a facade and a bravado that they know what they're doing and not everyone does, you know, it's the same with high school. They're, they're, you know, students are always comparing themselves to each other mm-hmm. and thinking, oh, I'm the worst in my class when it comes to this, but you're, they're not always, you know, there are a lot of people who, who also aren't sure of the next step. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I had a good amount of bravado, but I didn't feel like I knew what I was doing. <laughs> so, right. Or like I felt confident in some areas. And so that made me people think that I knew what I was doing in all areas. So, right. but yeah, I absolutely, when I reflect back, I think, God, why didn't I talk to my professors about this particular issue? Like, mm-hmm. you know, the one, the few times I talked to my, to faculty about problems I was having, Everybody was supportive. Everybody was helpful. So why didn't I just do that readily? Yes. You know? Yes. So I'm kind of wondering if we could dig in. I mean, so you, you know, you talk about a feeling of inferiority. Um, like what were some of the biggest challenges that came from that? Like, are there, were there sort of any like kind of specific challenges that came into play because of it? Or that you can imagine, like maybe even with students who you've worked with, you were Mm -hmm. a college counselor as well as working in admissions. So I'd be very eager to hear of examples from students that you worked with too. Sure. I think, you know, assumption plays into this a little bit too. They assume, well, I should be doing all of these things because it seems like everybody else is. But I've seen some students get themselves into a little bit of hot water by uh, taking on more than they could handle, biting off more than they could chew with regard to course schedule. Schedule, let's say, mm-hmm. you know, one of the first things I always advise students, regardless of whether they're first gen or, or not, um, is, is don't overload your first semester of college, right? Because it's so much of your first semester of college is discovering, you know, how can you handle all of this? It's a new challenge. It's different from high school. They don't have bells ringing, telling them where to go and when to be there and parents waking them up in the mornings and all that thing. And, and, and so I always say, you know, the first semester is, is crucial in, in finding your footing and finding your ground. And I, I think a lot of the students who didn't know what to prepare for, for college 
or, or who don't know what, what to prepare for are the ones who kind of worry and they assume, well, I, you know, it's expected of me that I do all of this. So I, I'm going to take a heavy course load and I'm going to take the toughest things I can do. And I'm going to, you know, sign up for all these activities. And sometimes they're, they're stretching themselves too thin. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of them just kind of, um, and I, and, and I was in this too, you know, don't, um, know how to plan or prepare for some things, even if they were successful students in high school, uh, it it can be just a different world when professors aren't telling you, hey, we have a test on this next week. It's in the syllabus, but if you're not always thinking about reading Mm -hmm. the syllabus, if that's not your practice, if your teachers in high school didn't provide syllabi, Mm -hmm. you you didn't know to look for these things. So you're just kind of expecting somebody's going to tell me when there's a test coming up or Mm -hmm. when a paper is due. But professors don't always do that, and so mm-hmm. some of that was the was the the, the trial by fire uh, for me. And and I do talk to some students who go through that too when they're not knowing what to expect and and ha- what what the expectations of college professors are on mm-hmm. them either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, learning just basic organizational techniques like looking at a syllabus and and comparing syllabus syllabi mm-hmm. so that you can note. Oh, wait, I have three papers due in the same week. <laughs> I need to plan ahead. I need to talk to faculty. I need to figure that out. Um, and on and let's face it, an eighteen-year-old brain. Most of us were not going to be great at that, even if we did go to a high school where they taught some of those uh, organizational techniques. So, right. Right. Yeah. Right. Cause there can be a little bit of overwhelm in that too. Right. Especially if you're, you're inundated, you know, I, I can think of a time it might've been sophomore year, even in college when I had three big tests in the same week. And I was coming off a year where I did more papers, term papers and writing than I had tests. So I wasn't in the practice of studying mm-hmm. for tests. And all of a sudden I had three biggies in the same week and there was some intersectionality in some of them. So it was actually more confusing to study for them. Mm-hmm. I was not prepared for these tests. I was woefully unprepared, but going through that experience and seeing the grades that were not what I was normally getting, uh, mm-hmm. were not acceptable for me, uh, mm-hmm. was a wake-up call. And it, it, it propelled me into a, a mindset of ultra preparation where mm-hmm. I had my little charts and my color coding of my, you know, what was due and when, and when was I going to study for what? And, and from that moment on in that semester, I was very successful. Mm-hmm. So that little blip woke me up and, right. and, and forced me into it. And so I, I know some students who've, who've gone through similar struggles there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I always hope to tell to students too is, um, and this is something the Wiley Foundation really emphasized mm-hmm. in the last segment, was that they try and connect their students to the resources available at the college or university. Like you, I'm going to be clear, Lisa, you were way, way more organized than I was at that age. <laughs> like, I mean, like if somebody had told me to color code something, I would have been like, you've got to be joking. But mm-hmm. what I did start to realize is that it was okay to ask for help. You know, and colleges have writing centers, they have math centers, they have study skill centers. And I talk to so many students who don't, for some reason, want to use that, or they're like, I can figure it out on my own. And I'm like, yeah, but you just told me you're struggling. Right. And they're like, yeah, but I can figure it out eventually. And I'm like, okay, but wouldn't it be nice to have help so you could figure it out faster? And then that would help you with your grades, right? You'll learn some of the techniques. So that's one of the things I always want to emphasize to students, like, please ask for help. And, and, you know, I've actually started telling students on your first paper, even if you think it's great, 
take it to the writing center, have somebody read it. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. because you know what, sometimes it's, it's, sometimes you need more work than you think. Yes. Um, The example I give is a a friend of mine who, um, I think she was a very good writer at her high school, but her writing skills were actually not that strong. I mean, she was salutatorian of her class. Mm -hmm. I read her paper and her first paper that we had both been assigned and it was not very strong I just think the writing department at her high school was not as good so she could write a main paragraph but they were disconnected from each other right had she gone to the writing center beforehand she would have not gotten this grade back now I think the good news is that the faculty member was very understanding and said, let's rewrite this. We're, I'm going to work on this with you. It's your first paper. This happens, you know, mm-hmm. and she took advantage of that. So, sure, sure. But you're yeah. right. Academic Center for Excellence, Writing Center, even the RA, even for, you know, for non-academic issues, there are safety nets and there are people mm-hmm. there on campus who are supposed to be resources for you. So the residence assistant, they call them different things, dorm mm-hmm. proctors, whatever they call them at different schools. But th- these are people who are trained to be a resource to mm-hmm. you when you're a new student and you're not sure what to do and to have you know answers or to be able to kind of direct you to people who will have answers if, if, you, if they don't have the answers for you. Yeah. Yeah. The resident advisors are, as you said, whatever they're called, are a great first stop for anything and everything. Mm-hmm. And like, let's just say it occasionally happens you don't have a resident advisor that's not as available as they're supposed to be. Right. Find out from your friends who, if their resident advisor is helpful. Exactly. Um, when I was an RA, I actually had some students from other dorms coming and talking to me. Sure. I realize it sounds like I was, I'm tooting my own horn, but I was known as being pretty accessible. Mm-hmm. And so people were comfortable talking to me and I was happy to help them too. I just was. Yep. yep. Same here. Same there. And I, and what drove me to be an RA being an uncertain freshman and wanting to be a resource for uncertain freshmen, right? Mm-hmm. Or to any, to any freshman, but just to for new students to help guide them and show them their way. So mm-hmm. that was important. But yes, to, to have that other resource. Also, upper class upper class students, you know, uh, you might live in a dorm that's not an all freshman dorm. I was lucky to have, you know, some seniors and some juniors on my hall as a freshman. I was one of only two freshmen on my hall, four freshmen on my hall. So it was really cool to have some older students, a couple sophomores too, who were kind of took us under their wing. And that helped my comfort level as a student you know, kind of finding my way, they would kind of, you know, tell me what to avoid and what to look for and mm-hmm. some good tips and hints. And, and, you know, even when it came down to thinking about what do I want to major in, these were great people to talk to because some of them had just gone through that process of finding mm-hmm. a major and, 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 you know, fi- you know, figuring out their path. So look for upper class students mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I randomly started chatting with an upperclassman who just was sitting next to me in the library when I was working on that first paper. Mm-hmm. And he was so nice about it. He's like, don't worry about it. Like it's your first paper. They know it's probably not going to be great. Like mm-hmm. he's like, expectations are low and they're there to help. And, and that really made me feel a lot more comfortable. I thought, all right, I'll do the best I can and I'll talk to the professor about it. So yeah. Um, any last kind of comment or advice? I mean, is there a way to find other first generation students if you're feeling a little bit 
out of place or I, I guess probably not at most colleges, huh? Well, I don't know if there's a resource that students can use, but I'm sure there maybe through word of mouth, you know, they might ask and if they're feeling, you know, bold enough to ask, you know, maybe mm-hmm. ask, a, ask RAs or somebody that there might be a way to find mm-hmm. out. Um, mm-hmm. I, but I don't know if it's, you know, do we all need to congregate in our own little group that, you know, mm-hmm. maybe not necessarily. I think it, there's value to talking to people of different experiences, but maybe, you know, getting comfortable with talking to folks who have a little more, uh, a little more background too. Mm -hmm. And, and just, you know, asking those questions, like I said, feel comfortable to ask the questions. Yeah. Questions are good. Yeah. Be ready to show that you don't know how to do something. I didn't know how to write a check when I got to college. I had my roommate who'd had a checking account for years had to show me how to write a check when we went to Safeway. That was part of my parents' tutorial to me. They Mm -hmm. taught me all about balancing a checkbook back when we used to have to do that before, Mm -hmm. you know, our banks seemed to do it for us, (laughs) whether we trust them or not. But uh, yeah, you know, learning how to do that, laundry, Mm -hmm. you know, the kinds of things that kind of always got done at home if you weren't the one to do them. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that was important. Yep. Yeah. All right, Lisa, thank you so much. That was really helpful. Sure. Good to talk to you. All right. We're going to take a short break and then we'll be right back to talk to Tara Piantanidis Kelly, one of our finance colleagues, about some rare potential good financial news when it comes to college, uh, why colleges might actually give you money back. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome, Tara. So good to have you here today. Thank you. Nice to be here, as always. So I was joking before... um, you know, when I kind of in- did the intro before that, this is one of the rare f- good news things on financial aid, which, you know, a kind of unexpected good news. Why did my school give me money back? So it does happen, everybody. So it, so, it does. so why would a school actually do that? Why would a school give money back to a student? Well, there's a, a couple of reasons why. And uh, families tend to kind of all lump these in together in the with the term refund. But schools have different names for it. So the first one that we'll talk about is what's called a, a credit balance. Uh, and that is when, let's say, you know, the student's financial aid or the student's term um, bill is $10,000 and they have 11000 you know, in financial aid to cover it. That's going to leave a $1,000 credit balance that the student can then, uh, you know, 
receive or not. <laughs> so mm-hmm. yeah, so that it's just like any anything else. If you owe this much and you pay this much, you're going to have this much left over <laughs> that right. you get back. <laughs> so every now and again, uh, it's possible that a student has uh, more than enough financial aid to cover the the whole bill, and then they mm-hmm. get some back to use for books or supplies or other educationally um, related expenses. Um, and the school is required to give that back to the student uh, unless the student form uh, signs some form of uh, authorization form. Okay. And so what what is that authorization form for? Well, there's a, a couple of different kinds, but the, the one for, for in this case is just uh, the, if the student signs something saying, no, you know, I don't want my, my credit balance refund. I want you to just hold it on to hold it on my student account. They can sign a, an authorization form to do that. And this, then the school can hold it on the, the student's account and not, you know, immediately give that back to them. Okay. And why would they want to do that? Um, well, let's say, you know, the student has, um, you know, the, their spring term is going to cost more than their fall term. And maybe their spring term financial aid isn't going to cover all of their spring term bill. So maybe they want to keep that credit balance on their account so that between that credit balance and the spring financial aid, their spring bill will be covered. Um, they don't have to. They can take it <laughs> and then, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully save it <laughs> for when they need it for the spring term. But if they're worried about um, maybe not having that, mm-hmm. uh, then they can just leave it on leave it on their account. Mm-hmm. Well, that would be pretty handy. Yeah. Uh, all right. So what about the other kind of refund? So this happens when a student withdraws from the school, you know, withdraws from all classes. So if let's say you have a student who um, registered for four classes and paid their tuition and fees, um, and then before the first day of classes, they withdraw from all of those classes, then the school is required to give back all of the, the money that they paid, you know, whether mm-hmm. that be financial aid or, or um, out of pocket, you know, they have to, they, the school didn't earn any of those tuition and fees because the student didn't even attend one day. They have to refund everything back. Mm-hmm. Okay. And why would, I mean, should someone want to know what a school's refund policy is before the student even enrolls? Oh, gosh, yes. So mm-hmm. so the example I gave is if a student withdrew before even attending the first day of class. But let's say that same student waited until the end of the first week or the end of the second week to, to withdraw from everything. The school has earned some of their tuition and fees. And so a school is required to have a refund policy that says, you know, if you withdraw at this period of time in the semester, you get this much back. If you withdraw at this time, you get this much back. And knowing that is is can be really beneficial um, just so that, you know, before a student withdraws, they know what that refund policy is. They know how much based on this time, how much of their tuition and fees are going to be credited back to them. Mm-hmm. Are there ever exceptions? I mean, my sense is that there really isn't. And the reason I'm bringing this up is I talked to this mother who, you know, I mean, I really felt for her. Her daughter had regular bouts of very severe depression where she really couldn't function. And um, and so her her mother was like, well, will she then get a refund if this happens after, you know, X amount of time? Will she get a full refund? And I said, I, to my knowledge, she won't. You should check with the school. Um, but I think it's based on time. And the mother was initially thought that might be like an anti-mental health care bias. And I said, no, it would be the same if if there was a physical issue preventing her as well. Um, and, uh, you know, I said, I, I don't 
know that I should defend this or not, but do keep in mind that the resources have to be there at the beginning of the semester and they're not going to lay off a professor because students drop out, right? Like it has to be there from the beginning. So it's different from whether you buy a gadget or not and then don't end up using it. So it's, I mean, I, and again, like I felt very sympathetic to this mother. This is very, very a tough situation. That's not anybody's fault, but yeah. So I was just thinking like, I just wanted to follow up and make sure I had given the right uh, comments there, the right advice. Yep, absolutely. So each school can craft their own refund policy and some of them are very lenient. You know, that you, you know, even through like the midpoint of the term, you can still get some. Uh, and some of them are very restrictive. You know, if at this point, maybe the third week, anything after that, and we have earned all of your tuition and fees. So mm-hmm. it's really good to, to know what that policy is before the student, you know, if the student is considered or even even before, just to, just to know what that policy is, it's mm-hmm. it's a, it's good to have, right? And in the case that uh, that you mentioned, speaking with the the mom who with the, the has the daughter that has um, these issues that might prevent her from completing a term, uh, there are some companies that have what they call um, tuition insurance or tuition insurance tuition refund insurance. Essentially, you can buy a policy, an insurance policy that says, you know, if my student does not complete this term, then, you know, and let's say it's beyond the school's refund policy, then, you know, for certain situations, they'll get that tuition back. And if, you know, you're attending a school that costs, you know, $25,000 in tuition and fees per term, I mean, that's, that's, that's a lot of money, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know? So, you know, it's possible for, you know, a family to, um, you know, the student to enroll and then drop, let's say, you know, halfway through and, and have zero credits earned and still have that $25,000 that they paid in tuition and fees that they're not going to get back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big issue with, um, I've noticed with some community college students, they'll take out a loan because they need it to attend class and then life gets in the way and they drop the class and they still have that loan to repay. Um, and that's very, very tough. So yeah, just think carefully about these things realize that just because that money didn't come out of your pocket doesn't mean that you know um you're not gonna have to repay it and then again sometimes it's completely unavoidable these families go through some challenging situations so absolutely and you bring up a really good point what happens if that student's bill was paid at least in part by federal financial aid let's say uh, you know a federal pell grant the student you know uh covered their bill with some part of a federal Pell Grant, maybe an institutional grant, which is not federal aid, maybe borrowed a federal student loan, and then withdrew. And mm-hmm. Now the school has to do two things. The school has to say, okay, based on our refund policy, how much of their tuition do we think we get to keep based on you know what, when they withdrew? And then at the same time, they need to do something called a return of Title IV funds, meaning Title IV is the, the section of uh, the code that says is for federal U.S. federal financial aid. Mm-hmm. And it says, you know, if you if the student got some federal financial aid, then in addition to doing that, what the school does with their own refund policy, they have to do this pro rata calculation and return some of the student's unearned financial aid to the student aid department, you know, to the the student aid programs. Mm -hmm. Um, So what can happen there is, let's say, you know, a student had a, a, you know, a $4,000 bill and uh, it was paid for, you know, $1,000 Pell Grant and $3,000 in federal student loan, right? 
And then the student withdrew at the, let's say the half, the midpoint of the term. And it was beyond the school's refund policy. So the school is saying, we're not getting, giving you any refund on your tuition and fees because, you know, past this date, you don't get any from us. But at the same time, they have to do this R2T4 return of Title IV funds. And let's say they have to return 50% of that Pell Grant. So $500 goes back. So now the student ends up owing the school $500. Because mm-hmm. they didn't get a tuition refund and now they owe the school and the school can do things like, you know, they, they, they won't allow the student to re-enroll until that, that balance is paid off. Or if the student wants to transfer to another school, the school can, you know, hold the student's academic transcript until mm-hmm. that that's paid off. So it's kind of a, the, the lesson here is know the refund policy mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> and, and then for any student who is considering withdrawing, um, talk to your financial aid office first and see if I withdraw as of this date, what are the ramifications going to be? And then based on that, you can make your decision. Do I withdraw now? Like in the case of the student who withdrew at the 50% point, if he had waited or they had waited until beyond the 60% point, then the the return of title four funds didn't have to happen. Once the student has completed at least 60%, 60% or more, no return of title four funds. Um, and also, if the student borrowed a federal student loan for that, the school is not going to take that money back and, and pay that off because the school, the student is going to have to pay that, like you said, regardless. So they'll send back like grant money, but they won't send back loan money. The student's just going to have to pay that off. Mm-hmm. So it can be good news, but it can also be bad news. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I think I think probably the big message there is that if at all possible, and let's acknowledge that sometimes it simply isn't, please finish out your class. You know, if you're yeah. at all able to, even if you're so, so busy and you're exhausted, that's right. a, you still want to kind of keep at it. So there are some good yeah. news, but ultimately, no matter what, try and finish things out. Yes, so. exactly. Exactly. Okay. And and sometimes it's better. I mean, if, if something becomes completely unavoidable, look, you know, talk to the school about t- taking an incomplete as opposed to withdrawing. Um, that's, you know, it's it's the lesser of two evils. So that's something to consider as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, that's a really good point, because if you take it incomplete, you could still finish it up yep. and actually get that credit. Um, and And colleges can be great about that. I had bronchitis at the end of my first year. And I, you know, I went to my teacher as I was, you know, like <laughs> struggling, breathing and coughing. Uh, she, you know, and asked for an, uh, an incomplete. And she said, absolutely. And then I had until the end of the summer to mm-hmm. finish up my last paper for her. And it was fine. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. People are humane. They'll do what they can. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's in everybody's best interest, including the schools, if the student completes, even if it's later. Mm -hmm. It's always everybody's best interest. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much, Tara. You're welcome. Always a pleasure. Okay. And thank you to Dr. Judy King and Mejean Lorth of the Wiley Network, as well as Lisa Albro um, of uh, College Coach. Uh, Be sure to tune in next week if you're applying to the University of California schools or almost all the universities in Texas, as we have guests covering the University of California and Apply Texas applications. They are their own beast. So believe me, uh, a good thing to look into this uh, these upcoming segments. And then finally, I want to remind you that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website. You can also download every show for free on iTunes. And don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. 
Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.